Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. A lot of people have said that the past few years have been a bad time to be a short seller. Uh, but here's one who has managed to make money despite the fact uh, that fundamentals haven't always seemed to matter in a central bank-fueled bull run. Uh, here joining us is my pleasure to introduce Fami Kadir, founder and chief investment officer of Safket Capital Management in New York. Uh, Fami, this, uh, the fund that you run is a short-only fund. This is not paired with with offsetting trades. So where are the opportunities right now at a time when central banks are still backing corporate America and, and, and corporations globally? Well, I became a short seller in a QE-driven market. So I, I and, and I've only made money doing so. And the way you do it is it's it the, the fundamentals matter, but the the surest way to understand when to short a company is you need to get the timing right. And typically if a company um, whose fundamentals, underlying fundamentals are poor, and the growth of the company is driven by a potentially fraudulent scheme, you have to first understand the fraudulent scheme because at some point they, the company can't perpetuate that scheme any longer. So what we've done is tried to pinpoint that timing um, because then um, no matter what happens, uh, the fundamentals will, will collapse because these are, you know, dirty businesses, businesses that, that, uh, perhaps don't really have a purpose. Um, so when the, when the fraudulent scheme is sort of at its at its end, um, that's where we come in. You've been described uh, as uh, ruthless, cold blooded, and dogged. This is uh, Mark Cahota speaking. He's the uh, uh, fellow who once ran the hedge fund. She's uh, wincing, Pim. Well, I'm in a in the short seller market. That may be. The words of praise. He was a former hedge fund manager of uh, Copper River Management. He's now a private investor. And uh, the fund is, your company's named Safket because it's the ancient Egyptian goddess of accounting, math, and knowledge, right? Yes. So uh, if you can put together some of those uh, concepts, could you walk us through the technical aspects of being a short seller? What are the challenges of trying to borrow stock Let's say, I mean, I just use the example of Tesla because I keep walking around and hear people say, oh, well, you know, there are a lot of very strident voices, both bulls and bears on Tesla. And then the next line usually is, yeah, but it's so expensive to borrow that, as you just described, getting your timing right is everything. Tell us what the challenges are. Uh, well, the challenges related to timing means that I need to stay intellectually honest and objective. I can have conviction that any company, let's use your example, that Tesla is a fraud, that the red flags that are um, raised by their accounting financials, as well as their corporate governance are potentially fraudulent and give me cause to short it. But just because I have reason to believe it's a fraud doesn't mean I'll make money shorting it. Um, so this isn't very technical. Um, it's, it's a very basic, and this is coming from the mouth of a mathematician. I don't short companies that make people happy. I don't short products that are selling. Um, so no matter how fraudulent I might believe Tesla is, I don't believe there's a, a surefire way to make money shorting Tesla. 
um, we're a high conviction, ultra concentrated fund. So I need to take on positions that are potentially 20%, 30% of my assets. Um, so I need to find names that are liquid enough, that are under the radar enough. And that means I can't just go flip through the newspaper and say, oh, people seem to be shorting Tesla. I need to go out in the world and find my own ideas. So yeah, I was just going to ask, how do you do that? How do you find fraud? Well, it's a lot of reading and a lot of traveling. Um, so you have to be patient. Uh, so over the past year, I was I, I launched my fund back in January. Um, so over, between um, when I left my, my old fund in April and January, I spent that time just building up my little black book of potential frauds and then digging as deep as I could to find evidence potentially proving that fraud, and then also getting confidence around uh, the timing of the opportunity. Um, so an easy way uh, to po uh, find potential short-term opportunities on the short side is to look at high-profile implosions. Um, so last year, there was Home Capital Group um, and the exposure of massive mortgage origination fraud. Um, so that created an opportunity in Canada, but I launched a fund in January. Um, so what happened in December? The implosion of Steinhoff. So that, um, you know, since December... Uh, we spent time really trying to understand the South African market, um, the culture there, and understand, you know, is there anyone doing what Steinhoff did but worse? Well, that was what I was going to ask. Is there anywhere in the world that you see a greater prevalence of fraud where it also could be undermined by a, a market that is somewhat free? <laughs> You will always have humans who like to con other humans. So unfortunately, there isn't really a geographic bias. Um, so the bias is only really related to uh, when I can make the money. So then following these high profile implosions, it's, a, it's, it's an easier way to make money because you're lifting the veil on the investors who are now jittery um, because they were trusting this company for so long. And, and wow, they were lying to us this whole time. It, um, it makes sure that regulators are no longer asleep at the wheel. Um, it also means that auditors have to take a finer tooth comb through financials of their clients um, because they're under a magnifying glass. So all of this, this sort of confluence of factors after a high profile implosion provides um, a potential opportunity for us to make money shorting frauds in a market that typically is unrelenting. Now, you were previously an equity analyst at uh, Kren Savage, correct? Yes. I wonder if you could tell us what was it like trying to get Kren Savage to really support the Valiant Pharmaceuticals idea and to really stick with that short position? I was in a very fortunate position uh, when I joined that fund in that I had pretty um, good autonomy as far as putting on short positions. And he was himself cynical on Valiant for many years. Um, and I only saw the opportunity to make money shorting Valiant after they had acquired Salix. Um, that was March, April of 2015, because when you tap out the balance sheet and your business model is buying growth um, and, and you now lose access to capital, then it's kind of all over. The unraveling of a roll up is never pretty. So um, that was a great time to get in. But, you know, I, I came from a corporate intelligence background, so I already knew what Valiant was up to. Um, but it was it was after that Salix deal that we felt we could make money. Do you have any uh, really big companies that you're targeting as a potential fraud at this point? Um, I do. Uh, one of them is uh, one of the biggest by market cap uh, companies in the world in the tech sector, less than 1% short interest, but I, I can't tell you what it is. You'd have to become an investor. <laughs> uh, fabulous. <laughs> Well, there you go. And uh, congratulations and best wishes on, on your firm, uh, Safket uh, Capital Management. Fami uh, Kadir, the founder and the uh, chief investment officer, giving us a little uh, look into the world of short selling. If I told you, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, let's thank thank you. I, you see me move a little bit further away. All right. Last month, when we got the January payrolls report, the markets freaked out. Well, we are setting the stage for another payrolls report, the first after that uh, rather interesting report. We're getting it tomorrow. And here to talk about uh, what we can expect is Priya Misra, head of global interest rate strategy at TD Securities. Uh, really prescient she has been uh, consistently on the bond market. So Priya, what are you expecting for tomorrow? We're going to get another uh, surprise like we did last month. So uh, thanks for having me on. We're actually looking for a weaker than expected number, particularly on the wage front, because I know the market really reacted like this is the start of a big spurt in, wa uh, in wage inflation, which is going to make the Fed hike much faster. But if you look at last time's report, there were some weird components of that report. Ours fell significantly. So our thought was, and uh, the number of people who couldn't make it to work because of the weather increased significantly. So our thesis was you had these significant storms in January. Maybe people couldn't show up to work. So the hours component fell. And if you think about the way average hourly earnings is computed, it's the wage bill by hours. So that skewed the number a lot higher. So not that we're looking for a big miss, but we are looking for a strong point one on month over month average hourly earnings, which takes the year over year rate, which is I think what the market focuses on, to a 2.7. Now remember, it was running 2.6, 2.7 much of last year. So that does not spook the market, should not spook the Fed. But I think if you do get a number, you know, from 2.9 heading higher, I think that certainly has the propensity to, uh, you know, get the market extremely concerned around pace of hikes. But we think it's too early to get con uh, to be sure that inflation, wage inflation is absolutely in a higher trend. And just to be clear, that is uh, you're expecting 2.7% increase year over year in average hourly uh, wages yes. versus, uh, you know, potential upside surprise 2.9 or higher. Uh, Priya, uh, do you think that uh, bonds, particularly treasury bonds, are they overpriced? And, and I wonder if you could tie in your thoughts about the dollar. Do you think it's going to strengthen or will it continue this weakening? Sure. So on interest rates, we think the front end is actually very fairly priced. We're pricing in about three hikes this year, which is um, you know very similar to the Fed's median forecast. We don't think that the dot plot is going to suggest a faster pace of hikes this year. If you look at what- How many end, hikes are you looking for? Three? We're looking for three three this year. Uh, the market's pricing in an endpoint of the hiking cycle at about 2.6%. It's a little bit lower than the Fed's forecast of 275, but really what's 15 basis points among friends. So I think the front end is very well priced. Uh, where I do think the market may be a little overpriced is term premium or longer end bonds, where I don't think we're pricing in enough of that supply, uh, you know, that's going to hit the market over the course of this year and beyond. And I think particularly if the ECB is done at some point this year, the Fed is absolutely done with buying. At some point, investors will demand more rates. So I think the long end has room to rise, but the front end seems pretty well done. On the dollar, we're generally negative, um, partly because global growth seems to be picking up. I think the story over the last few years, which was the US was strengthening while the re rest of the world was not, I think that's played out. And so if global growth is uh, resurging, and certainly we're seeing the strongest pace of coordinated global growth, I think it, the, the dollar is somewhat going to struggle. I also think trade protectionism it's in the air for this entire year, and that's going to be a headwind for the dollar. So I think the dollar certainly has room to uh, decline from so, here. So does that mean that you see inflation, that the fear of inflation has been overplayed? 
I think so, yes. Uh, I mean, the dollar should put some upward pressure on inflation. But if you look at the pass-through from the dollar to even import prices, there's barely been any pass-through. Into CPI, there's been no pass-through. So for some reason, the dollar is not having an impact on inflation. But generally, when I look at uh, wage inflation or CPI, I think this fear that the Fed is behind the curve, that's definitely uh, overplayed. We're not seeing signs of the Fed being behind the curve on inflation. Even the tips market doesn't seem to be suggesting any such fear. So you said that you think that they're uh, on the longer end with, say, 10-year and 30-year treasury yields, uh, treasuries, they're they're overpriced. I'm looking at yields right now in a 10-year, 2.86%. Uh, on a 30-year, 3.1%. Where do you see them going by year end? So our forecast is actually 3%. And that you know almost seems like there is not a lot of room for long-end rates to rise. So we look, we're looking for the 10 to be, uh, 10-year rates to end the year at 3%. But I have to say, I'm looking for a much more volatile path. Because what can certainly happen is around auction points, you could have a bigger sell-off. But I think that is a headwind for equities or risk assets. And I think that'll actually bring tens back down. But we're not looking for a sustained rise in rates because of the impact it'll have on risk assets. Well, and to that point, how important are next week's auctions? I believe that uh, it will be uh, the first five. I think the the U.S. Treasury Department is going to be selling five tens and 30 year? Right, threes, tens bonds. and bonds. Yes, it is a lot of supply. I think I'm looking at these auctions, I guess, with a little more interest, just given that the last set of these auctions, I think saw a little less demand from the end investor community. We saw a bigger primary dealer takedown. And that in my mind is not good for uh, interest rates or term premium because dealers ultimately will buy bonds at a discount, if you may, or at higher yields, and then we'll ultimately have to redistribute it. So was last month's auctions a one-off, or are we going to see more auction-related volatility going forward as we realize that the Treasury deficit, which, you know, or if you think of net issuance of Treasuries last year was about $650 billion. we're expecting about a trillion. And it was already a high number, and then we got the budget deal, which added another $400 billion to the deficit. So there's a lot of supply. I think that end investor demand for treasuries is going to be absolutely critical for how these auctions go and for the overall level of interest rates. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Priya Misra is the head of global interest rates strategy for TD Securities, talking about global interest rates. Right now, I want to bring in Irene Finnell-Honigman, adjunct professor of international affairs at Columbia University in New York. Uh, Irene, thank you so much for being with us. I, I want to just start uh, by asking, what historical precedents should we go to to sort of frame the trade scuffles and the tariffs that we hear about today? Um, first of all, thank you for having me on again. Uh, I think one of the uh, important issues is that throughout history, tariffs have been seen as uh, being very positive, very short term, when geared toward uh, giving a boost to specific industrial sectors. But they very quickly deteriorate into potential even trade wars, going all the way back to the origin of some of these issues between the French and the Dutch in the 1660s, certainly through the 19th century in the U.S. And then if we look at much closer precedents, in 19 1984, the Reagan steel tariffs to protect the car industry and Harley-Davidson by 1987 were dropped as actually having proven useless and of relatively little help 
But this was against Japan in a totally different, clearly bilateral world with a totally different geopolitical and and economic structure. Uh, By 1993, under the GATT negotiations, the whole issue was that the U.S. versus a new European Union, represented at that time largely by President Mitterrand of France, on agricultural, intellectual property, financial services, the whole purpose was in a new regionalism and a world where Asia was coming into its own, to begin to eliminate tariff and non-tariff barriers. I was with the Clinton administration at that time and involved in some of the meetings on these issues. So the whole purpose after the fall of the USSR was to look at a multilateral world. Today, with globalization and technology, tariffs become even more irrelevant and almost immediately adversarial. As your former speaker said, the EU is already setting out retaliation measures. The other thing I find almost amusing about 1984, which to this time has absolutely no literary or cultural references, but rather refers very specifically to a period which President Trump seems to almost have a regressive nostalgia for, uh, looking at a world which is really no longer in place. But traditionally, tariffs often have uh, immediate impact They seem often to be a political boost to specific sectors in an economy, but they have never been proven to have any type of long-term advantages. Irene, then maybe you could describe from the the other perspective, which is, let's say, our trading partners. uh, They are not going to wait to see what the United States does. They are going to move ahead with whatever their particular agendas are. What do you believe they are going to do? Well, I think certainly... Uh, the European Union has already made it clear that there are a number of of, of products uh, from juice, certain agricultural products. These are relatively minor, but in principle, it's already making it clear that they're actually setting up, if necessary, to take the U.S. to the WTO. Uh, so evidently, this is the worst case scenario in which every country starts to fall back on protecting its own interests. Uh, versus the fact that we desperately now need more global cooperation on so many of the issues. And if you begin to see your allies as adversarial trade partners, uh, what does that mean for all the other aspects, uh, geopolitical, political, military, strategic aspects, where you need them as allies? The thing also I find right now very odd is we are completely unsure Will Canada and Mexico be exempted? Will certain members of NATO be exempted? So will we have a sort of mini version of these tariffs with more exemptions? This is all extremely confusing, and I think just adds to this general uh, lack of confidence and lack of clarity. And in many ways, we've been seeing this in part since Brexit and certainly since uh, November 2016, since the Trump election. You know, Irene, a lot of times when people think of tariffs and protectionism, uh, they refer to the populist movement. I mean, if you think about, for example, uh, what just happened in Italy, where uh, a number of candidates who have uh, anti-shared currency types of views, uh, anti-euro views, uh, were elected. I'm just wondering, what does populism mean in 2018? given that it seems to infer something slightly different than it used to? Well, I think we have to be very careful to make a very clear distinction between populism and nationalism. And I think populism 
almost does go back to the sense of representing the uh, the disenfranchised members of your society, but very much within your own group, uh, those that basically feel that they're no longer being respected, being involved, uh, that are not part of the elite. Uh, so this is really sort of the Italian version of populism. Now, I think the situation in Italy <clears throat> is a little bit unique because when Italy goes very heavily anti-immigrant, which unfortunately are the xenophobic part of the xenophobic platform of the five-star party in the South, they have been severely impacted by the migrant crisis at a time when they were still basically in recession. So this is where we have populism which is not always necessarily a negative and has to often be taken into account. Why are these voices of discontent? Nationalism, on the other hand, is very dangerous because nationalism, as is the case now, certainly across uh, former Soviet Union, Eastern and Central Europe, specifically in Poland, is very much part of a mythologized past, looking at ethnic purity, looking at walls, looking at the dictates of a strong by the church, state, ruler, and very sadly, nationalism, no matter how you put it, becomes a gateway to fascism. Uh, we see this certainly in Poland, which, as you know, Article 7, which is basically sanctions, possible sanctions, uh, may already be invoked against Poland for violating freedom of the judiciary, for historical revisionism, and basically historical denial, which has just been codified into law. Right. Hungary close behind, and a sort of what I call a prettier and younger neo-fascist PM uh, Prime Minister in Austria. We got we got to leave it there, Professor Irene Finell Honigman, adjunct professor international affairs at Columbia University. want to bring in uh, Laura Rahm, our, the chief U.S. Uh, economist for FS Investments, helping to manage approximately $20 billion based in Philadelphia. Laura, thanks very much. I just want to start off by uh, understanding where we are in the uh, the business cycle. We got the uh, initial jobless claims report, and um, it seems as the labor pool is pretty tight. And this is just one of the elements that you say indicates that we are at a mature phase of the cycle. Tell us about the other indicators and what this means for investors. That's right. You know, we focus so much on forecasts of GDP quarter to quarter, but to me, that's really missing the point. When I look at the overall arc of the business cycle, in addition to that tight labor market, you're seeing expensive asset prices. You're starting to see the consumer looking um, over leveraged again, not so much in mortgages, but in consumer debt, uh, close to levels that we saw in the savings rate low, uh, low enough, close to levels that we saw at towards the end of the last expansion. So the one critical piece that we're missing is inflation. Um, normally, in the late stages of a business cycle, we see inflation starting to rise. And that has been something that markets are now really on edge about. I think we all remember what happened uh, last month when the employment numbers came up. Boy, that's really put a focus, I think, for everybody on tomorrow morning's numbers. Laura, you know, you talk about consumer debt reaching levels uh, similar to where it was ahead of the last uh, crisis. A lot of people dismiss this. And if you look at it on a per capita basis or uh, on a debt to uh, household wealth basis, it doesn't look that bad. Do you think it is more concerning that people are letting on? 
You know, I do. And there are two reasons for that. One, our economy is still so reliant on the consumer. So we really, given our heavy, heavy reliance on the consumer, we need the consumer to really continue to add momentum if we want to keep this really, you know, what is actually a very robust pace of growth going forward. And the second reason is that we're just not seeing the labor gain, the wage gains. Um, a lot of the, I think, increase in spending that we've seen is driven by wealth gains. And that's lovely. Don't get me wrong. But should we see any correction in stock markets? I think all of a sudden the consumer starts to feel the pinch and could pull back pretty quickly. Um, that kind of uncertainty uh, gives me pause. And I think, um, you know, we all need to be mindful of the fact that high levels of leverage naturally lead to higher levels of volatility, both in the economic reaction and on the part of financial markets. Laura, I don't know whether you've had the chance to look into the new Amazon store in Seattle where there are no cashiers. You just pick up your items, you go, and it is instantly debited to your account or whichever prime account you might have at Amazon. It's automated. Do we have the same kind right. of automation that exists when it comes to the investment world and people really don't know what is behind their activity? Because if you pick up something and you don't know how much it costs, you don't know right. until you go home that it really might have broken the bank. You know, I think, I think that's a great analogy. I think, you know, it's, it's incredible how there are so many unknowns right now that really put us in unchartered waters. Um, and the big one is this passive versus active investment. There are so many robo-advisors, algorithmic trading programs, um, you know, ETF-based investments. And I think it just reinforces this complacency. These products were developed to give us diversification, but if everybody's in the same trade to diversify, it actually has the opposite effect. And that's what we've seen. So, um, you know, when we had, I think, the really big spike in volatility about a month ago, that giant gap down, you know, the optics on these moves are, number one, really shocking, just given the high levels of the index values in and of themselves. And second of all, because we just don't know where a lot of these moves and trades are coming from. But I really want one of those stores to open near my house because <laughs> I think that makes it make shopping sound a lot easier. <laughs> well, Laura, you know, uh, there are a lot of risks and we're outlining some of them right now. We heard from J.P. Morgan's Dan Pinto earlier today and he was saying that he could foresee a scenario uh, where in the next two to three years, uh, U.S. stocks sell off by 20 to 40 percent. Can you envision a scenario in which that would happen? I mean, does that seem likely to you? Well, and I think, you know, I, you know, who knows? I don't have a crystal ball into, you know, any kind of sell-off or timing or anything. If I did, I would be speaking to you from my yacht in the south of France. But um, <laughs> I think um, that when we look ahead, we know from history that um, that the economy tops out, that stocks uh, tend to peak much earlier than the economic cycle does. So uh, we often see um, by the time sort of a, you know, the economic expansion winds down, um, by the time that a mature cycle turns into and ends in some kind of break or recession, that the markets have usually signaled that far in advance and have made the corrective move far in advance. So I think, you know, that's where you need to almost remember that markets are so forward-looking. Um, and I think we've seen a lot of the positive news on the economy already priced in. I just don't know where you get more positive surprises on the economy from here. 
Laura Rame, thank you so much for joining us and uh, happy International Women's Day. Uh, Laura Rame, Chief U.S. Economist at FS Investments, which oversees about $20.5 billion uh, based in Philadelphia. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.